Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining the shift community. You can go to steady.media forward slash the shift and become a member of the shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters, community membership, and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's steady.media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. Have you always wanted to wreak revenge on your worst enemies? Those who wronged you, conned you, or just crossed you? Well, if you've ever lain in the bath, or on the sofa, or wherever, fantasising about how you'd get your own back, my guest today is your woman, Jane Fallon, aka the mistress of the revenge romp. Formerly a TV producer, Jane gave us the era defining this life, amongst other things. She did a massive handbrake turn at 45 after a flash of overnight inspiration and chucked it all in to write a novel. Her debut, Getting Rid of Matthew, was a hit, and 12 novels later, she hasn't looked back. Her latest, Just Got Real, looks at what it means to be unexpectedly single again in midlife and tackles the world of online dating. Ooh, shudder. I want people to start thinking 61-year-old women aren't what I thought 61-year-old women were. Actually, they're not better. Better is a terrible word, but, you know, they're not kind of old people to be written off. And I think if you start erasing all your age in your face and you start lying about how old you are, you've sort of gone against that, really. you sort of bought into the idea that we are worthless when we're 60. And I feel like we've got to fight the good fight there. Jane joined me to talk about giving voice to women over 40, how perimenopause induced her creative midlife crisis, the liberation of embracing 60, and how she trained herself to stop catastrophizing. I was all ears. That's one of the things I've always loved about your books is that your characters are 
midlife is already becoming a cliche, isn't it? Maybe we need to reclaim middle-aged. I don't know. But largely they're, they're, women over 40. Yeah, exactly. Know. They're pretty much all women over 40. And actually, they've sort of aged with me as well. And I think they're not quite as old as I am yet. <laughs> but because uh, I think that's when for a lot of people, particularly women, life becomes really interesting. Because yeah. if you've had kids, they're probably leaving home. You know, you're at a point where you're thinking about what you're going to do with the kind of second half of your life. Are you going to carry on working? If you are, are you going to do what I did when I was 45 and have like a massive about turning career? Um, and I think there's much more at stake. Like if you're 25 and your relationship breaks up, you're 25, you know, you'll be sad for a while and then you'll meet someone else. But if you're 50, it's harder. Things are harder. Things have more ramifications, I think, when you're a bit older. So yeah, I love writing about older women. I mean, again, that's something that has started to happen a bit more. But I mean, you've been doing it. Well, I suppose when you did this life as a TV producer, I mean, that was a real like era defining TV for, I don't know, I was going to say people of our age, maybe a little bit younger. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, a little bit younger. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, twen- I think 20s, people that were at college, I think, or recently out of college really kind of tapped into it because I think they felt like they'd been a bit unrepresentative or in a realistic kind of way like you hadn't really seen those people just out of college and trying to struggle around and make their way in the world yeah it was always like the sex in the city equivalent if you like it was yeah. always in Glamour. the no lows rather, yeah yeah, yeah. Rather, rather than, than sharing the, a house with five people and all that kind of thing that we all had to do yeah waking up with a kebab on your face <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> Did your characters just get older with you or did you look for a theme or, you know? Uh, There's a bit of both. They sort of did get older with me because it just felt odd to me to be, you know, I know an experience of 50 to 60 in recent years, but I don't know what it's like to be 20. And although I think you can write those characters, I feel like for my main characters, my lead characters, I want to really be able to sort of get into their heart and soul so I, th- I think they will always probably grow older with me but I always do look for some kind of theme but funnily enough I don't I often don't find it until really late in the day like the I, I'm in I'm writing a first draft at the moment and I'm about 35,000 words in and you know that stage that's the scary old I'm oh, that's the worst oh my goodness me I have a complete breakdown between about 35 and 60,000 words every time but just yesterday I had a kind of epiphany about what the heart and soul of this one was. And so now having, even having written that much, I've just discovered it. So that's going to inform everything else I write. And also obviously when I go back and rewrite it. So I don't always necessarily start with a kind of a theme. I want my books to be about something over and above the story. So do you start with the character? No, I usually start with the central relationship that I want to look at. So whether it's friends or siblings or a couple or colleagues or whatever there's always some little central relationship that I'm interested in and and this time actually what came very very early on with just got real is the online dating because I've got so many friends who are doing it obviously I've never done it myself but I'm just fascinated I can't get enough of their stories and I can't get enough of the sort of vicarious terror that I live through them (laughs) of the whole idea of it and again particularly when it's women who are slightly older because imagine how vulnerable you would feel to put yourself out there now I can't imagine sticking a photo of myself on a website and saying come and get a load of this lads I just it's really frightening so I just thought that's a great especially if I have a character who's introverted and she's not naturally gregarious and all that kind of thing she's got vulnerabilities because of various things that have happened to her recently I just thought it would be a kind of lovely thing to explore I can't even because I haven't been with John as long as you've been with Ricky but over 30 years I mean I just can't no 
conceive of being no. well a back out there because they think about oh my god how long is it since i you know had sex with somebody who wasn't my husband but also the whole ball game has changed yeah it's a different universe completely different universe we really are the old boomers in this situation i think that it's hard to get your head around actually doing it and the thing i find really interesting is a lot of my friends who've done it i don't know if you've had the same experience they've said to me i've ended up with a lot more friends and i didn't need a lot more friends because actually they'll spend months talking to someone, getting to know everything about them. You know, they like them. They get on really well. They talk to them on the phone. They like the way they look. And then they meet in person and there's that split second of there's just no chemistry at all. You know, your pheromones aren't going crazy. There's just nothing. And so you've invested all that time. Whereas in our day, you sort of met someone across a crowded bar and it was like you either liked them or you didn't. It was that simple really in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I suppose also when you're young, like you say, when you're 25, there's nothing lost. Nothing lost. It doesn't no. feel like there's anything lost. Okay. No, because you have all the all the time in the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you're not expecting to find your soulmate. Most people, I don't think, are 25. And even if you want kids, you've got a good 15 years to worry about that or whatever. But I tried to put myself in that situation. Like obviously, you always do when you're writing a main character. And I couldn't get past the... I'd be terrified of somehow sort of being laughed at or feeling ridiculous. I don't know. It's just... And my main character, actually, who's coming up for 50 and hasn't dated anyone apart from her husband for 20 odd years, she starts off on the wrong foot because she actually puts on a photo of her sister, who's five years younger, who kind of looks like her, but not quite, which is obviously a really bad way to start. But I totally understand that instinct that it's so bald, a photograph with all your like laughter lines and your marionette lines and all that kind of stuff out there for everyone to look at and say yes or no to. Yeah, it's so like window shopping, isn't it? And I, I remember a friend of mine, I mean, this was ages ago, and I think she must have been, I was still on red, so she must have been around about 40 or very early 40s. And she was on um, Guardian Soul Destroyer. And she was going on the date with a bloke and she was saying to me, oh, I don't know, he's 50. I think that's a bit too old. So yes, yeah, she was 40, so was 10 years older than her. And I was like, you know, John's older than me. It's like, give it a chance. You never know. She got there and like the first words out of his mouth were, um, you know, I wasn't sure whether or not to cancel this because you're too, you're too old. It's <gasps> like, oh my God. Well, I'm guessing that he hasn't found love with anyone since then. Well, I that's hope not. Horror. But- what is this obsession we have with youth? I don't get it. Because you're, I mean, I couldn't believe it when I did my Googling. And I have to just tell you, there's a picture. It looks like a, it could be your passport photo from the 80s. Oh, God, quite possibly. Couldn't believe you were 61. How was 60? Was it daunting? Was it? Do you know what? I had so many people say to me when they were coming up 60, I'm not going to tell anyone, you know, or everyone's going to write me off. And I just thought, oh, sorry, I'm going to tell everyone because why not? And so I did quite happily go around saying I'm 60 to anyone that would listen. And um, I have found it really liberating. The one downside for me is my joints are just not having it anymore. And that drives me insane. And that really annoys me. But everything else, somehow I feel more confident. I don't know why, because I've always been ridiculously kind of thin skinned and I get very kind of paranoid about what people are saying about me. And I've lost a lot of that. I feel much more like I don't care about any of that thing, side of things. I kind of like it. I feel like I've, you know, I'm getting towards old lady rights when I can sort of say anything and no one expects anything of me and people will just be going oh isn't it amazing that she's still working at her age or something but um no it's been all good so far for me i i highly recommend it (laughs) well like you know the alternative is not great so but yeah this is true 
Yeah. Tell me about your, because you did this big handbrake turn at 45. What was going on in your life that made you go, right, changing everything? Well, not everything, not relationship, but work. Yeah. So I'd been in TV at that point for, I think, probably 20 years in one way or another. So I'd been doing, you know, and I'd done different jobs within TV and I'd kind of worked my way up and all that kind of thing. But I was getting very bored of it by that stage. And I just, I think anything where you do the same thing and always my whole life, you've, I'm sure you've read this somewhere if you've been looking at stuff, because I always mention it. My whole life, I wanted to be a novelist as a child, as a young child is all I ever wanted to do. And I had buried that completely. And the TV thing was a kind of um, smokescreen for me, really, that I thought I can work with stories and drama and fiction, and I can get a bit of writing out of my system and all that kind of stuff. And it was great for those years. And then just the last few years, I think probably as well, because I was exec producing by that point. So it gone from being sort of more on the coal face to just having endless arguments with commissioners about, you know, why you couldn't make all the characters a bit nicer or something, just annoying. And it used to drive <laughs> me insane. Um, and you knew every time I was coming up with a project, I knew because it was always the same people, I knew what their notes were going to, it just started to drive me crazy. I've been there too long, basically. Uh, I just finished Teachers, the last series of Teachers, and I was trying to think of what to do next. And I've always been an insomniac. And what I do to try and help me get through the night is I've always thought up stories and plots and stuff like that. One night when I just finished Teachers, I thought, okay, well, I'll just think about an idea for a new TV series. And I had this sort of epiphany of the idea for getting rid of Matthew, which somehow came to me fully formed. And that's literally never happened to me again or anywhere close. But I kind of had the whole, not the whole story, obviously, but the whole kind of basic plot of it all. Also, I was perimenopausal. I have to factor that in because I think hormonally, I got suddenly very brave very quickly. I'd started probably 20 novels in my life and I'd never got anywhere with them. I'd never shown them to anyone. I'd never finished one. And I just thought if I'm ever going to try and do it, this is the idea that feels the most like me of any ideas I've ever had. So I sort of went along on this rush of telling them at work that I was taking a year out and, uh, and that I was going to write a novel, telling everybody that I worked with so that I would be shamed into actually having to, you know, report back and say that I'd written something. And yeah, I think I was very, obviously very lucky in a lot of ways with my situation, but also I knew that I could go back to work. Yeah, I'd always been freelance. So even though I've been at that working through the same company for a while, like on and off, I knew that I could just go back. So it wasn't as brave as it sounds. I wasn't sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But yeah, I still don't quite understand how I ever got to be that brave for like a day and a half. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because I was going to ask you if perimenopause had come into play at that point, because it's not common, but not uncommon that people throw some of their lives under the bus yeah. around that time. It was almost like a good creative midlife crisis. It was like a positive midlife crisis. And I can only think that kind of been hormonal, really. I knew I was perimenopausal at that point. I was all over the place. So yeah. And I feel like actually some of that, even though the menopause is a bit of a horror, let's face it, but some of that you carry on through that confidence. Once yeah. you get through the sort of weird phases of weeping and wailing and sweating I feel like that confidence has kind of stayed with me so you knew you did know it was perimenopause did you know instantly know what was happening to you or was it like a process of evolution because it's not like it was that long ago but certainly when was I I, mean, I suppose I was perimenopausal eight or nine years ago now and it felt like like I was waiting around in the dark trying to find someone to talk to me about it yeah and that was earlier again so yeah, no, I, I guess that's what it must have been at the time. I mean, I knew, I thought at the time, this is what it must be. And I'd had a weird experience where my periods had been going a bit haywire and I went to see this 
doctor at UCH. Oh my God, I, I must have been referred by my doctor. And it was this guy, I guess, in his 50s. You know, he examined me and everything and he said, oh, yes, yes, you're menopausal. I think it was about probably about 43 at this point. He said, uh, I need to give you something to regulate your cycle. And so he gave me what I now realize was like traditional HRT. And I went home and I had the worst period pains, like kind of period pains I've ever had in my life taking this stuff. Horrendous. So I just stopped taking them and I never went back. But I sort of knew from that point that there probably is something going on. But it frightened me so much, the effect it had, that I didn't actually go and talk to anyone about it until I was kind of partway through the actual thing and I was pouring buckets of sweat and quite crazy. And I thought, no, I really have to go and talk to someone now. And that was probably seven years later. God. I know. So do you went private then? I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah, and I, I, went no for the, yeah, I went for the bioidenticals. It was then a time when we were all still a bit nervous about HRT, which, you know, now I think is there's no reason to be. But, but just on a sort of intuitive level, I didn't really like the idea of a bit of a one size fits all kind of treatment. Mm. And someone I know told me about this amazing woman who does the bioidentical hormones where they can sort of tweak them towards your actual hormone levels. Uh, so you're not getting too much of anything. So I sweated and sweated and sweated and sweated for about two years. When I started, I thought, I thought I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm not even going to tell Ricky. I'm going to tell him after it's all happened, so I can go. Oh, guess what? I sailed through. I'm so naive. I sailed through the menopause. Yeah. It was easy. <laughs> anyway, cut to sort of horizontal sweat pouring out of my forehead. So obviously, I told him straight away. Um, but yeah, I sweated like a crazy person for two years. Then I had a week when I had all of the emotional stuff. When I just kind of felt desperate and crying and crazy and like I lost myself completely and that's when I went to see her and I would say the turnaround was really quick after that after she gave me the bioidenticals to start on I think that's the thing isn't it that it's that kind of I mean the sweating is shit and it's you know whether it's night sweats or day sweats it's shit but it's that kind of that moment when you just totally lose sight of yourself yeah yeah it was frightening I hadn't ever really encountered anything like it before and also I think you th my immediate thought was what if I feel like this forever I just thought I can't I can't it's ridiculous so yeah I'm, in retrospect I would have gone much sooner actually and got myself sorted out yeah I mean it's good that when you went to the doctor the first time they did take you seriously and give you something but that kind of kind of okay we've given you a thing off you go he didn't take blood tests or anything I mean he honestly he was terrible he just kind of said no that's it you're definitely menopause will take this. So I don't see how you can even see what level of HRT to give someone if you haven't taken blood tests. Yeah. That would have been about 2004, <laughs> I think. And I think the improvements in the last 20 years are, you know, it's like a century's worth of improvements that we've had. So definitely go to your doctor if you're having symptoms because it's miserable. Don't go through it alone, I'd say. So when I was reading Just Got Real, one of the things that really struck me, there's no sense that it's because she's menopausal, but Joni is an absolute structure and control addict. Yeah. Um, and I totally get that. I mean, having gone from having a very, very full on office job where your day is structured for you to, you know, sitting looking at a blank screen, that kind of having to layer it. When all these changes were happening, did you feel like you needed to make your own parameters for your life? I think I felt like um, I needed to know that some things were in my control because you do feel like a lot of what's happening to you is completely out of your control. And to be honest, I am a bit of a control freak is the truth. Um, and I also, I'm very, I like routine and I like organization. And then I know where I am. I like to know that my structure's in place and then I can happily sit on top of it. But I've never been very good at just 
being all over the place. So it probably did bring that out in me a bit more. Yeah, I think the need to just feel like there was something in my life I could kind of take ownership of. And what time of the day do you go to the gym? I either go at about 11 or at about four or five. That's my I thought you might say four. Right. Oh, in the afternoon, really? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you know what? Joni is the closest of my characters I've ever written to me. All the exercise stuff that is her therapy, really, which I find it is. It's so good for my mental health, I think. And also, uh, like you say, the control and the sort of introverted, the tendency to kind of close herself off. I would do that quite easily. I would quite easily just back into a room and sit there. So I'm actually really fond of her which sounds weird, sounds very narcissistic, but I'm really fond of her because I feel like I really understand her because she is the most like me I've ever, of any heroine I've ever written. When did you get into the, because I have to say for everybody who can't see you, you are wearing like the most difficult cap sleeve t-shirt. Like, so only someone with sensational gym arms could wear that t-shirt, Jay. Oh, please. I try. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So when did that start? When did I go all gym? Well, I've always liked exercise because I was a kind of horribly shy child. One of the things I was good at was I was really good at sport. And so that would be like a really freeing time for me playing sport. And I would always get picked first when I was at primary school to be in anyone's team because I was really fast. And that's like, if you're like a shy child, that's such a massive boost. So I've always loved my sport. And then I sort of fell out of love with it a bit in my 20s and 30s because there were other more interesting things to do. And then I sort of got back into it seriously. Do you know what? It was around the same time as the whole epiphany, the whole work epiphany. It was around that time. And again, it's like, because I felt like I'd started to lose myself and I felt like I didn't quite look like me and I just didn't feel right. And um, yeah, I just thought I need to do something. And I went to a couple of classes and it wasn't really working. And then I did some personal training sessions and that just got me so into it. So I guess it was, yeah, it was like around my mid forties, I guess that I started to get really into it. And I've just got more and more. I just love it. I absolutely love it. I love what it does to my body and I love what it does to my brain, mostly to my brain, to be honest. One of the things I really enjoyed is the kind of, you seem to have real fun kind of shooting down all the cliches and tropes that are chucked up middle-aged women not least cat lady but you are a cat lady so you I am a cat lady I will always be a cat lady if I'm left on my own one day in the far distant future I will have about 100 cats and dogs and everything else I can get my hands on but uh no I think it's fun I think that's what cliches are there for for us to like burst their bubble and so many of them drive me mad and what thing I really like looking at as well is like the vanities and things that we all have and trying to pick away at those because it's just fun. But yeah, do you know what? I read a book. I can't remember. if I Even if I could remember what it was, I wouldn't say actually. But I read a book a couple of weeks ago uh, by a young female writer. And there was a character in it. And she had a gray, a short gray perm. And she wore a house coat. And she called people dear. And in my head, this character was 80 something. And then at some wow. point, she announced her age. And she was younger than me. And I just think how that's insane like it's insane that people still think of 60 year old women like that even if you're 25 I mean she is a young writer I can't remember like I say who she is but those kind of cliches drive me mad any cliches drive me mad really so yeah it's fun to pick them apart yeah there's a brilliant moment and um I think Joni is in the changing room and she says something about menopause to a young woman and the young woman can't stop the flicker of horror and disgust and probably also took a step back. Yeah. You know, just yeah. in case it was catching. I mean, one of the things that I definitely found the most is that, yeah, blokes are a bit like, oh, what is that? Not interested. Well, some some nice blokes are interested, but on the whole. But it was actually the young women who were the most like, 
I just never going to happen to me. Yeah, it's never no. going to happen to me is what they think. But that makes me want to do it more. It just entertains yeah. me. So, yeah, I want to keep banging on about it to people. Oh, you don't know what's coming. Oh, you don't know what's in your future. It's like, <laughs> But I was like that when I was their age. I just thought, one, I thought you were 105 when you went through it. I've got three older sisters and not one of them was any use to me when I started asking questions. <laughs> not one of them. Really? Yeah, none of them could remember. It was like childbirth. They just put it all out of their head. But, you know, I, I thought you were kind of ancient. And I think that's probably, if you're 20, you probably still think women are ancient when I they suppose, go through it. Yeah, 40 is ancient, isn't it? Yeah, I, I suppose. So. If you're 20. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like now I'm thinking, oh, 16, no problem. No, it's no problem. It isn't. <laughs> One of the things that came up a lot when I was writing the book, and um, I know you've read it, so you'll probably, you might remember it, you've probably read about a, a zillion books since then. But um, it was when we were talking about relationships, I had a focus group of about 50 women. And I'm trying to think roughly how, I would say roughly 80% were either split from their long-term partner or their second long-term partner were in the process of splitting or divorcing or wanted to. And were they a certain age group? How, what age range were they? There was 40 upwards. Right. So they were predominantly 40 to 60. But the level of hmm, dissatisfaction, um, boredom, unhappiness really, really struck me. And I actually felt a bit annoying and smug that I'd lived with someone for over 30 years that I yeah. didn't actually want to be rid of. Yeah. You've been with Ricky for 40. I'm not going to dwell on it because I you don't like talking about much, but how have you put up with each other that long? I think the fundamental, I, I often get asked this actually, but I think the fundamental thing, and it'd be interesting to see if you're the same as John actually, is you've got to be friends. You're there, I think, to be each other's cheerleader. That's your job it's like I am always very confused when I meet people and if they're you know if you're out for a drink or something all they do is slag off their partner and I don't mean people whose partners are like you know actually treating them really badly or abusing them or whatever I just mean you know relationships kind of functioning relationships but it's like they seem to have this massive level of sort of irritation and everything with their partner and I just think that's not you're their number one person you're in it together and I it's interesting as well that I've never been one of those people that kind of had the girls and Ricky's never been one of those people that had the lads and we've always kind of wanted to do stuff together and a lot of my friends who are in relationships that are still working after all those years are the same like it doesn't mean you don't go off and do your own thing but you're your primary person in the world I think that's really important do you find that do you think that with John yeah. that your friends first is the most important thing yeah definitely because I don't see how you could put up with someone for 30 or 40 years and no, not or be why you would yeah yeah exactly and why you would I think sometimes people get caught up in the drama of it and I don't want drama in my personal life I want a nice happy personal life with someone that I have a laugh with yeah yeah totally Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Something that comes up again and again on the podcast, but um, also on the, the shift community, is the kind of friendship pressure, if you like, the sense that you've got to have lots of friends, you've mm-hmm. got to have close friends, like there's something a bit wrong with you, like you're not to be trusted if you haven't got loads of female friends. And that also that's something that somebody has said to me in the past, not knowing that I would probably have said this, I think, that they said, oh, I just think people who say their partners, their best friends are a bit weird. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to sit on my hands here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. How odd though, because this is the person you've chosen to spend all your time with. Why wouldn't they be your friends? I was never in those friendship groups when I was young. I always had friends and I would always have sort of a best friend of the time, but I never had that big gang of girls. And they're sort of like, I'm fascinated by them, but I don't have loads of friends. Like I have my kind of best closest friend who I've been friends with for 30 something years and and then some other friends that aren't close but I've, I definitely don't have that sort of big girly gang and I sometimes think is there something wrong with me <laughs> like yeah but then also I don't know when I'd find the time to be hanging out with them all anyway really no it's I don't know I mean I do wonder if it's something I mean definitely in attitudes to friendships do seem to change at this stage of life but I do wonder whether it is something that you build from a very young age yeah I think that's quite possibly true and like one of my sisters still has the best friend that she's had since they were, I mean, since they were babies practically, and she's older than me. And I envy that. I think it's a lovely, lovely thing. But I just, I was always that person when I was at school and then at college and everything where I'd sort of move on to another. I was really bad at keeping in touch with people, which is a real flaw in me, I think. I was terrible. And it was, to be fair, it was harder then. You had to write a letter or you had to queue up for four hours to use the landline. But I was really, really bad at sort of moving my friends along with me. And I think there are just people that are good at that and there are people that aren't really. And I'm just not one of those people that is good at that. And they're, they're actually great because they're the people who do the organising. I mean, I've definitely got a friend from university. We all only see each other when he organises it. Yeah, yeah, it's good. You need one of those people in your life and they can also do the keeping in touch with everyone in the meantime and then you can have a lovely time catching up once every couple of years or whatever. But Tops. Yeah. yeah. It seems like when you're a kid, you think, oh, I can't wait to be grown up because there won't be any rules. But of course, there are tons of rules. But then as you get older, it seems like the rules start to increase increase again mm-hmm. like oh you're an old person or you're over 40 so you shouldn't wear that or you oh that's my favorite that. <laughs> that's well, my favorite oh go for it go oh for my it. god I'm obsessed with those things those articles about what you shouldn't wear at 40 at 50 at 60 it was sometime during lockdown I read one and it was like dungarees are a definite no no after 25 and I went and bought some dungarees I thought I love dungarees I'm gonna wear dungarees I don't care like who are you to tell me what I shouldn't shouldn't be wearing but then I was just reading an article in something today about what people should wear to Wimbledon and why Meghan Markle got it all wrong because she wore jeans and so and so had got it right because she wore this. And I just think, who is making these rules? Like, stop it. It's just random, isn't it? I mean, I feel like I dress more probably like I did in the 80s, actually. 
yeah. now than I have done for a long time. Yeah, no, me too. I veer between sort of toddler and 15 year old, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, because also I feel like, I don't know, I just wouldn't be me if I suddenly started wearing what the papers tell me I should wear. I just wouldn't be me. It's like, and I would feel horribly constrained. And I like to slob around in kind of baggy things. And oh, I don't know. It's just ridiculous. Drives me insane. So, do you dress to hide or to be seen? Oh, well, definitely not to be seen, I don't think. Or that, well, occasionally, I think if you know, I'm going to some really kind of knobby do, it's quite nice looking the best I can. And there's an element of liking to be seen in that, but I equally am very uncomfortable with everybody looking at me. So what was the first option before to be seen? Because it would be that one. <laughs> uh, well, it's actually a line from, from the book. Is it, do you dress to hide or to be seen? I think I'm somewhere in between. I think most people are probably somewhere in between. And also it depends how I'm feeling. Sometimes I really want to hide. I definitely um, dress down rather than dress up 99.9% of the time. And I'm much more comfortable dressing down than dressing up. But it's not to hide, really. I mean, I'm kind of reasonably body confident-ish. So I don't feel like I want to hide. But equally, I'm not definitely not that body confident that I want to be showing off lots of skin or whatever. Just that wouldn't be a good look. How is the red carpet? It's both alarming and funny and sometimes quite boring. Mm. But mostly... <laughs> quite funny. It's just quite a funny, ridiculous thing. More and more, I've grown to like the having someone come and do my hair and makeup. And, you know, I've picked a dress that I feel confident in. I sort of like that for a day. It feels really nice that you're presenting the best kind of side of yourself that you can present. And then after that, it's just funny kind of people spotting, whether it's something, you know, ridiculous, like the Golden Globes, where there's an insane amount of kind of big stars, which is quite funny. Or it's something over here where, you know, I'm running around going, look, at so-and-so off Love Island. It's just a funny old experience so yeah and we don't do them very often is the truth like really quite rarely uh i wouldn't want to be doing them all the time god no boring apart from anything yeah boring yeah exactly and quite often actually you just want to get in and sit down and have a drink and go for a wee (laughs) there is an element there uh, certainly the first few big american ones i went to there was definitely an element of fun it was just i felt like an observer at the zoo it was like kind of do they do that thing where you have to get out of the frame or are you allowed to stay in the frame now do you know what i have been asked to get out the frame and the only time actually that happened was over here which is fine but slightly odd and most of them will do a sort of combination of they'll do both of us and then they'll be like can you just which is fine you know i don't care really you're always going to be seen as the plus one i guess does that piss you off a bit i mean you're, you're very successful in your own right it would piss me off if we were there for something that i'd done <laughs> i kind of know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it would really me off. but um do you know what i kind of feel it's a bit like when people make speeches when they win awards and they spend ages thanking sort of their family and their children and stuff like that i kind of want to say but this is a work event like thank the people that you worked with it's not a this occasion isn't about your family and your kids. And I sort of feel a bit like that with a red carpet. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm not the one that's done the work. So I don't really care if I'm edged out of the frame at that point. Has that aspect of your life made you feel like, oh, maybe I should Botox, you know, I have to dye my hair, those kind of things? No, I mean, I still do look at the state of my hair. I still, the blonde bits are still dyed. They haven't been dyed, as you can see, for quite a few months. Oh, is that grey roots? Because it does merge into the blonde. Yeah, but I haven't, because I'm deathly allergic to hair dye so I can't all this brown stuff is my real color um oh, right. yeah which is real so I just have the blonde so I am still kind of on and off with the dyeing my hair but with the um with the Botox and stuff no I mean I look at myself and I think I wish I didn't have you know these marionette lines which I'm obsessed with but I just think what's wrong with looking older what's wrong with it one I'd be terrified that it would go horribly wrong and I'd 
look really odd and my eyes would be suddenly be vertical. But mainly I do think, I think it's a bit sad that we feel like we can't have a wrinkle or we can't, that's your life in there. The two things that are going to happen to every single one of us is we're going to get a day older every day and we're going to die at some point. And I don't really see why either of those things should be a big taboo or a big problem. So my plan is to hold out. Who knows? Maybe I'll wake up one day and just think, I really, I can't, you know, this is, I, I can't bear it for some reason. So I'm not going to never say never, but my plan is never to do it because I sort of want to just hold out for natural being okay. It feels a bit to me like the same as lying about your age. I mean, I remember, I think it was probably late 30s when I suddenly noticed that some of the people, other editors that I worked with who had been older than me were now younger. Fabulous. Always good. And it's just a bit like, well, don't you think people notice? I mean, I don't spend an undue amount of time worrying about how old you are, but I did notice that (laughs) I'm 40 before you and you used to be two or three years older than me. (laughs) So funny. But what I don't understand with that is I'd rather someone said, oh, she looks good for her age than, oh, she's younger than I thought, but she looks really ropey for it. Like, isn't it better to people to go, oh, you look all right for 61 than go, really? You're 50 in a kind of, I can't believe you're that young because you don't look it kind of way. And again, what's the problem? What is the problem? I don't understand. I mean, it's the whole thing, isn't it, about value. And if you don't value yourself that way, and I don't value myself that way, and most of us don't, but when the world around you does. Yeah, of course. But I sort of feel like we almost have a duty to make people value us for what we are. Like we're both still doing what we love and doing it well and doing it to a good kind of level. We're still a part of the normal world. You know, we haven't been pensioned off into a care home yet. And I think I want to stand up for it because I want people to start thinking 61-year-old women aren't what I thought 61-year-old women were. Mm. Actually, they're not better. Better is a terrible word, but you know they're not kind of old people to be written off. And I think if you start erasing all your age in your face and you start lying about how old you are, you've sort of gone against that really. you sort of bought into the idea that we are worthless when we're 60. And I feel like we've got to fight the good fight there. I definitely had a sense when I was going up through journalism that women vanished, certainly yeah. in their 40s and in the main long gone by their 50s. But then if the ones who are there, who in their 50s are lying about it, I mean, obviously they're doing it for a reason. They feel they need to do it. Yeah. But even so, it's still it's still kind of doubling the problem. And remember, it used to be like that in TV. I worked very closely with a woman called Edwina, who I loved, who was, I guess I was like 35 and she was 60. And she was one of the first people that was ever saying to me, don't tell anyone it's my 60th birthday because I'll never get another job. Because mm. TV, I think, was very ageist then. But again, I think... I mean, obviously, I've been out of TV for quite a while now, but looking at my friends who are still there, and as far as I know, not lying about their ages, I think it's definitely got better. Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, a balance between where you need to keep bringing up the next generation and you need the new young presenters and new young audience and all of that. But it's like when it means pushing everybody else Mm. out. I think that's the Yeah, you need experience across the board You need and you need uh, expertise across the board. So you know things that 20-year-olds don't know and 20-year-olds know things that you don't know and you need a kind of good cross-section of everybody, I think. Can I ask you a really personal question? You can feel free to tell me to fuck off if you want. But um, one of the things that really took me by surprise when I was menopausal was, you know, I had never particularly wanted children. I mean, couldn't have them, but never particularly wanted them either. But when I was perimenopausal, I still had this really unexpected wave of loss. Mm -hmm. Like that ship has absolutely sailed now, even though it wasn't an option and, you know, all of those Mm -hmm. things, even with all those provisos. And, you know, because you also haven't had children, did you experience that? No, I didn't actually. And you're not the only person that's ever told me that they felt like that, interestingly enough. No, thankfully I didn't. Mine was a 
choice. And I've never yet regretted it. I did always wonder, would I regret it when I got older and I could have suddenly miraculously had 20-year-old kids, you know, who weren't 100% my responsibility anymore, but would be, you know, fun and lovely to have and, you know, see me through my old age. You know, I sometimes I look at my sisters and their relationship with my nieces and nephews and I think, oh, I would really love to have that. That is lovely, but it doesn't mean I would go back and change. I wouldn't have kids still if you ask me, did I want kids and have to go through the first 20 years. Um, so no, luckily I didn't. I didn't. That must be quite alarming. It was just unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it just kind of came out of nowhere. But what made you decide not to have kids? It was weirdly not ever a sort of real decision. I just never, even when I was a kid, you know, when you're a kid and other, particularly little girls, certainly when I was a child, they would play with dolls and they would talk about, I'm going to marry this person when I get older. And when I had baby, and I never did any of that. I was up a tree, like looking for an ant or something. Um, and so I never thought about it. It never factored into my plans for my life. I never even really considered it. I just knew that's not what I wanted my life to be. And I think I'm lucky that I'm the youngest of a big family. So the pressure's off a bit because I've got mm-hmm. brothers and sisters who have had kids. I think that's a very different dilemma if you're the only one. When I was in my early 30s, I think I was at EastEnders, I had a sort of intellectual crisis about it that I thought, what if this is a terrible decision I'm making? Or, you know, what if, what if I suddenly decide and it's too late? And so I thought around that for a few, I don't know, months maybe. But I still came out the other side and thinking it wasn't just wasn't for me. I think I'd be a terrible mother. I'm such a catastrophist. I'm not really a catastrophe anymore, but I always used to be. And I'm such a warrior. I'm that person that if you were coming around to my house and you were five minutes late, I'd be phoning the hospitals to find out where you were. <laughs> you know, I just assume the worst has happened. And I, I think I would have stifled a child with my absolute fear of letting them go out in the world and do the things they're supposed to be doing. So yeah, I always think, I think, I think it's no loss to the world that I haven't had kids really. I'd have had like terribly kind of paranoid kids who were too scared to go out the front door probably. Do you have catastrophizing parents? No, not at all. The opposite, which I sometimes wonder is why I was like I was. Um, my mum, bless her, was always, she was so lovely, my mum, and she was just Everything was lovely. Everything was fun. Everything was fun with my mum and dad. And she just thought the world was a lovely place. She was very naive in a lot of ways. She just thought everyone was basically lovely and the world was a lovely place and no bad things would ever happen. To the extent that when I was like a young teenager, I would go out at night and, you know, they both also worked really hard. They worked really, really, really long hours. So there was no question they were going to come and pick me up at like two or three in the morning. So I would just walk home. They had to get up at four. Yeah, they had to get up at 4.30. Yeah, exactly. And even later when they didn't have the shop, they both still worked. Like when I was a teenager and we, we left the shop, they both still worked and, you know, long hours and stuff. And so if I went, if I was going to go out, I had to find my own way home. But and it used to worry me. I used to be scared walking home at like two or three in the morning, but it never crossed my mum's mind that anything bad might happen. Like sometimes I used to want to say to her, you know, I might get murdered on the way home. You could like come and pick me up. No, they were there with the opposite of catastrophizing. You said you're not anymore. When did it stop? Did you do something clever to make it stop? I did sort of make a conscious decision about it because when was, I guess it was it was in sort of the last, I would say the last 10 years, probably about 10 years ago. And I can't really remember what made me, what the actual incident was, but I was worrying about everything, like really worrying about stuff and what if this might happen. And it was at a time when, you know, you know, you're in that kind of horrible time when you're, my mum had got much older and my stepdad had died and she was terribly lonely and things were happening in my family around me and stuff like that. I would lie awake and I just worrying, oh my God, what if this happens? What if this happens? And I just thought, I can't live like this. It's insane. Why am I worrying about things before they've even potentially happened? And I sort of forced myself to stop. And actually, it's interesting because if you force yourself to stop, you do stop. Like I actually would make myself think about something else if I was, you know, working my way through the next 10 years and thinking, oh my God, what if this happens? 
which I guess is a weird sort of some kind of self-meditation or something that if you do something often enough and you make yourself not think in a certain way, then you kind of stop thinking in a certain way. So I'm not like that at all anymore. I'm much more like, oh, let's just wait and see what happens. That's really interesting, isn't it? You've got to like push yourself to do it because it's so easy to indulge in, I think. But you can, you definitely can get past it. You've just got to, yeah, you've literally just got to stop yourself thinking like it. Do you think it's part and parcel of the other things that have come in the last decade, the kind of being a bit less people pleasy, I think you said. Sorry if I've just put that on you. No, I didn't, um, but you're right. You know, exactly true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a bit less self-conscious, more confident. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of that whole. Yeah, I do. I think it all comes together. And again, maybe it's like a, some kind of massive hormonal thing that suddenly you may be able to feel like that. But I think it definitely is. Because now I just will just think to myself, what is the worst that can happen? And it's never that bad. Yeah, I've just stopped myself seeing past the next step of things, really. Is there anything? kind of on your bucket list anything like you know so 15 16 years ago you kind of write I'm gonna write this book you did your handbrake turn into your writer life is there anything next it's a tough one because I am doing exactly what I've always wanted to be doing so my big ambition is to just keep doing this at some point I have got hankering to open some kind of animal sanctuary that's as a kind of long-term plan I really like the idea of whether or not I'll ever actually get to put it into place I don't know that's the only thing and do a handstand handstand. that's one thing place where my confidence just hasn't come back I'm absolutely petrified well, it's not even in my frame of reference. Oh, it Can needs you, to be done. So get out then. Drive. Oh, God. So are you yogaing? Is that or? I, yeah, I do yoga. Yeah, yeah. I do yoga once a week and then um, I do weights and all that kind of stuff. Got a handstand. Can you do other stuff? I can still you do can a cartwheel. So I, no. I, I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. You're lucky you're not on belly. I'd make oh, you. Know, oh, my God. And I'd fall over and it'd be really embarrassing. No, I decided. So the reason I took up yoga which was about 2005, I think, was because I'd always done gymnastics when I was a child. And I went to do a cartwheel for some God knows what reason. I couldn't do it. I was just really scared. I couldn't do it. And I thought, oh, this is terrible. I can't be this weak at 45. I'm way too young. So I started doing yoga and then got back into being able to do a cartwheel. And also as a side thing, got into running, which I'd never been able to do because obviously it sorted my lungs out. Like as an ex-smoker, it obviously sorted my lungs out. And then I decided that that would be my test of when I got old. I was going to do cartwheels at least once a year. And I I take photos of them and I put them on social media so people hold me accountable to it. And then there'll be there'll come a year when I can't do it anymore, and that will be when I can officially say that I've got old. So that's my cartwheel. Are you still putting them on. Are you still putting them on social media, yeah. Yeah. Instagram or Twitter, Twitter, and they usually they're slightly worse every year. <laughs> it's usually just a still photo of me in midair, slightly worse every year. But then in my yoga teacher started getting me to try and do handstands, and I can do them up against a wall fine. But I really want you see those people. It's so amazing. You see those people doing them in the middle of the room, and I really want to be able to do that. But I'm just scared. I'm going to go over into a back end, and my back's going to snap in half. I'm terrified. So I'm trying to find ways to build it up. That's my ambition. When you went back to doing all this stuff, asking for a friend, were you intimidated? I wasn't intimidated as much as a little bit embarrassed that I'd let my flexibility go so much. I just felt annoyed at myself actually more than intimidated. I think probably when I first started going to the gym, I was a bit intimidated because I didn't really know what to do. But then I got a trainer and she's brilliant. And now it's like my happy place. I think you have to remember, which is also my big thing in life that stifled me for the first at least 35 years. No one is looking at you. No one cares what you're doing because they're way too busy worrying about what they're doing themselves. So I think if you go to do those things and you feel intimidated, you just got to try and remember that really. Yeah, gyms in particular. Well, there's two things. The gyms, it's all a bit like some bloke, you know, 
Yeah, there's always posturing blokes. Yeah, there's yeah. always some posturing bloke. But the yoga, because I'm so, I have this thing where I, I start going, I go for a bit, I get really into it. Then for some reason, I stop. So this time I, it was COVID. And then basically it all goes tits up. And then yeah. so I go through these cycles. I mean, I couldn't touch my toes even when I was like five or six. I've never been able to touch my toes. So, I can't anymore, I don't think. For all the yoga I do, I don't think I can touch my toes at the moment. It's when they're all standing there, you know, with their hands flat on the floor. And you're just like, I can't even put my hands flat on my thighs. <laughs> but no one cares. No one's looking. I don't know. It feels like they are in yoga. You must go to a very judgmental yoga class. I do yoga on Zoom which is great. Yeah, no one can see you. Yeah. Well, they can, yeah. but they can't see every kind of bit of you and exactly what you're doing. Maybe. I definitely feel like I'm insufficiently bendy. Yeah, I feel like um, I could be more bendy, definitely, even for doing all that. And I do feel like that's important as we get older, because you've got to like hold yeah. your spine up and hold yourself upright. And, you know, you're going to do yourself less harm falling down the stairs or whatever. Yeah, definitely in the hole. I mean, I can still, I can stand on, you know, one leg with my eyes shut for 20 seconds or whatever, those kind of... With your eyes shut is what I find almost impossible though. I can do it without my eyes shut, but yeah. And that's yeah. a really good indicator of, of how you are, your balance, I think. What's your emotional age? Uh, my emotional age, I think... It's a hard one, isn't it? Because sometimes I feel like it's back when I'm in my 20s and sometimes I feel like it's now. I think, yeah, I think it's probably now, actually. I think I'm a big old grown-up now. Your face. I know. <laughs> I'm thinking of 20-year-old me and how disgusted she'd be. But, yeah, I think I've just got to admit it. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I, no, I wouldn't go back for no, anything. No, I wouldn't either. I really wouldn't. For all the, like, highs that you remember, oh, so much shit. Yeah. Definitely. Um, give us a book recommendation. Uh, so the book that I always recommend to people is In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, which I've recommended so many times to people, I which I've read. That. Oh, my God. I just think it's a masterclass in bringing a place to life. So obviously it's based on real facts, but it's written like a novel, as you know. I've read it so many times because it's the first half I love when he's talking about the family who all then get murdered. And the little town they live in, I feel like I'm there. I feel like I inhabit that place. And I just think it's the most gorgeous piece of writing. Uh, what advice would you give younger women? That would be the don't be so self-conscious. No one is worrying about. Everyone is too concerned about their own shit. Everyone thinks they're fucking up themselves. So yeah, just don't be so self-conscious. Uh, who's your old bird role model? That's a hard one because I can't think of anyone, an actual person, but it would be one of those, you know, when you see those stories in the paper and it's like Joan, 85, doing the splits. It would be one of those women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be some 90-year-old doing a handstand. That's who it would be. Yeah, that's what you're going to be. You're going to be Jane, yeah. 85, doing a handstand. Yeah, unsupported exactly. handstand. Unsupported handstand. It might take me till then to be able to do it, but that will be me. <laughs> What's your superpower? I think I have a very unglamorous superpower, which is the fact that I'm very self-contained. I feel like I'm very happy being on my own, doing stuff on my own, going away on my own, whatever. And I feel that that's quite a good thing. We're all going to end up on our own probably at some point when we're old. I feel like it's good to be comfortable in your own company. So yeah, it's probably that. I'd much rather it was like being invisible or something, but it's not. Yeah. Do you think that plays into what we were saying earlier about maybe not having tons of friends? having a solid relationship. Do you think all those things are interwoven a bit? 
Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely do. I was kind of, even from being from such a big family, I was very solitary as a child, but I would seek it out. I'd get a book and I'd go somewhere where I knew no one could find me. And I think you learn if you haven't got, if you don't find making friends easy when you're young, because you just can't, don't know how to make those connections. I think you have to learn to be happy on your own. And I think that is actually a really good life skill. So many things that I want to ask now about like making friends and learning to make friends, but no, because we're out of time. How many fucks do you give? Way fewer than I used to, but still a few too many, I think. I need to like get the last few out of the way, but way, way fewer than I used to. And about a lot of things, absolutely none. Thank you, Jane. That's brilliant. It's Thank lovely you. to talk to you. Pleasure. You've got to show me a cartwheel now. <laughs> Do it in here. I'll kill someone. The cat's over there. I'll land on her. Oh, I've been waiting for the cat to visit. Oh, she's turn, there. Turn your, turn your screen around. I don't know if you can see her. She's behind the stairs on the pickle. Oh, she's been very good. She is very good. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>